Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, any great movie creates some tension. I just saw recently the, the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, my son has seen it, I think, four or five times now. And anytime someone talks about going, he'll hint at like, hey, I'll go with you. And it's a great movie. But like any good movie, it starts, everything's going well. And then this tension is created. It takes a dark turn. And then eventually in the end, the tension resolves and it's kind of like a happily ever after moment until they make the next Spider-Man movie. Uh, but but that's, that's what's happening in Romans. And so I, I just want to set the stage for the next few weeks that at times it's going to feel like this, the book of Romans just gets dark. Paul talks a lot about sin. But if you remember what we talked about last week, Paul began by propping up the gospel and saying, I believe that the gospel, I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that can fix the sin problem. It's the only thing that can reconcile humanity back to God. So he starts with the good news and says, the happily ever after moment, that's it. But in order to get there, in order for there to be good news, there's gotta be bad news. Otherwise, uh, good news without bad news is just news. And so in order for there to be good news, we've gotta see the bad. And so over the course of the next few weeks, Paul's gonna be making the point that the only thing that can fix us is the gospel and in order to do that, he's going to have to take us down a road that shows the reality of just how bad man is. And so it's going to be a dark picture, but Isaiah 9-2 reminds us that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light that's referring to Jesus. Like there's hope on the other side. So as we wade into this, like just think of your favorite movie. Starts good, tension's created, but it's going to get good again. So just, just hold on to that as we, as we walk through that. We're going to pick back up in verse 18. So if you remember last week, we talked about the gospel. It's the power of God unto, unto salvation. Verse 18, he says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It says sinful, wicked people. That's a reference to the corruption that exists in our relationship with God, but, but also with each other. And he says, God shows his anger or is pouring out his, his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He says that, that the truth is within all of us, but our wickedness is, is suppressing it, is, is, is holding it down. If you've ever been to the beach or like if you go to, to the pool, like take a beach ball or a flotation device, have you ever tried to like hold it underwater? Like, like you can do that, but it takes a lot of effort, Right. Because the natural tendency of whatever it is that you're suppressing is it wants to rise to the surface. And so what Paul is saying is that the truth about who God is, the truth about what he just said in verses 16 and 17 is within all of us, but we are choosing to suppress it. We are choosing to hold it down. The reality is the tendency of the gospel is to make itself visible in our lives. But by our wickedness, by our choices, by our self-centeredness, we are suppressing the truth about who he is. Verse 19, he says, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. You say, well, how has he made it obvious? Well, simply put, he starts by saying he's written it within us. Like they, they found tribes in parts of the world, tribes in Africa, that they have these pictures and these drawings of these divine beings that they don't necessarily know who Jesus is, but they know that something beyond them and something greater than them has created them. And so there's an awareness on their part that there's a God, there's a deity, there's a being that, that is greater than them. And it's written on their hearts. They were born understanding it. They were born knowing it. They were born drawn to it. But then in verse 20, he says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. 
Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. He says, not only is it written within our hearts, but he says, take it a step further, he says it's visible in creation. You just look around. Have you ever looked around and just sort of soaked in, not just nature, but I mean, go to like the beach or go to the mountains and like watch the sunset. God created this world so intricately and with so much detail and so much intentionality. And he created a place that could inhabit humans. And we know, you don't have to be very smart to know this, but with, a, with, just, smi- with just like small, insignificant, minute changes, we wouldn't be able to live here. If the earth was any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If it was any further away, we'd freeze to death. So God created this and he, t- he created this ball of fire to warm the planet. And it's not that we just get to enjoy the, the warmth of it, but he does it in this really cool, beautiful way. When you watch the sun rise and the sunset, God could have just thrown a, a ball of fire up there and been like, there you go, humanity, I'm going to warm the planet. But instead, he chooses every day for us to get a, an image of what it means to have a fresh start as the sun sets and it gets dark, but every morning it gets light again. And when the sun sets and when it rises, it doesn't just set and rise. It does it in a grand display, announcing to everybody, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And then the next morning, if you've ever watched, especially at the beach, it's like these deep reds and oranges. And you look and you go, man, what a creative, what a clever, what a, uh, an imaginative God to create the earth in such a way. And then for nature to, to just sing his praises. He gave us seasons. Like, again, he can just throw a ball up there and all of a sudden it heats us and that's just how we function. But he gives us fall and spring as a reminder of everything dying, but in spring, everything coming back to life. Like right now, we're living in the throes of everything being dead, but in a month, it's all coming back to life and we look forward to that. And it's a reminder, it's a picture of sin is destroying everything and the gospel is changing everything. Even in creation, God paints this picture to show us this. All of creation is pointing to him. He says in verse 21, yes, they know God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became other, utter fools. It says they knew God, like it was written in our hearts, it's visible in creation, but we wouldn't worship him. And you ask the question, why would we choose to not worship a glorious, all-powerful, ruling God? Well, it's pretty simple. We don't want to worship God because we can't worship God and make the rules. Like, I want to make the rules. I can't be in control and at the same time surrender control of all of my life to him. As humans, we're wired. We want to take the glory of God for ourselves. We want to use our lives to direct other people's attention toward us, not towards him. Like, the number one competitor to God in my life is nothing around me. It's me. You talk about all the things that exist around us, all the things that are drawing us, but it's my sinful, wicked heart that is enticed by and wants those things. The number one competitor of God in my life is is me. And our rejection of God has caused our, our minds to become dark and confused, he said. In verse 23, he says, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, you may feel like, okay, good, I'm not a part of this because I don't have any graven images in my backyard. That may have been what it looked like then, but those images were not just those images. Those images represented something. 
You might have an image that you worshiped because you believed it would bring rain. You might have an image that you worshiped because it would be, you believed it would allow you to have children or, 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 or allow you to be fertile. And so in our culture today, we may not worship graven images. In parts of the world, that still very much happens. But for us, we worship other, other things. They may, not, they may not be tangible in the sense of like a wooden or a stone carved statue, but they're just as much real. An idol is anything we set up to exist in a capacity that only God can exist. And not only did they do this in the first century, but we continue to do it today. And he says, when they stopped worshiping gods, God, excuse me, they didn't start worshiping or they didn't stop worshiping. They started worshiping something or someone else. They started worshiping other gods. We must worship something. We're created to worship. Greek philosophers taught that we're telic creatures. Now, I'm not smart enough to read Greek philosophers. I'm just smart enough to read people that are smart enough to read Greek philosophers. So this is what they say Greek philosophers sat around and talked about. They said that we're telic creatures. That means that, that we're purposed people, that we have a need to live for something else. You ever thought about why the book, The Purpose Driven Life, that Rick Warren wrote sold over 50 million copies? Because you see a book titled The Purpose Driven Life and 50 million people go, I want that life. Like we're wired and to, we have a need that points us to purpose, to live for something bigger than ourselves, to live for something beyond ourselves. We want, we want meaning. We want purpose. Dallas Willard said, meaning is one of the greatest needs of the human life. One of the deepest hungers and perhaps in the final analysis, the most basic need in the realm of human experience is to have purpose and to have meaning. We are going to live for whatever we elevate in our life, whatever we set up to exist in a capacity that only God can exist. If it's God, we will live for and worship him. If it's something else, we will live for and worship that. Whatever captures our imagination, stirs our affection, commands the bulk of our attention, that's what we will live for, that's what we worship, that's what we serve. And whatever we worship defines and validates everything that we do. And because we wouldn't, this is a progression, because we wouldn't worship the creator, the only thing left was to worship something that was created by the creator. The only thing left to worship was something that was, that was created. In verse 24, he says, so God abandoned them. Again, this is, this is where it's, it, it's getting dark. Like God's wrath is poured out on sinful, wicked people. We wouldn't worship him. We wouldn't acknowledge him. We denied, we, we, we exchanged the truth of who he is for a lie. In verse 24, because of that, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. God abandoned them to do whatever their hearts desired or better, probably better said is not desired, but over-desired. The truth is for many of us, it's not that we desire things that are evil, it's that we desire more than we need of the good things that God has, has created for us. It says God abandoned them over to these over, gave them over to these over desires. As a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. This is a reference to any type of sexual immorality, inordinate, self-indulgent craving and fulfilling of any sexual desires outside of the bounds in which God created it. Sex is a gift from God. Given, for, given to humanity for enjoyment, but the over-desires of our heart will cause us to take something that God gave us and use it in a way that doesn't honor him. 
And as a result, it says God gave them over. Have you ever thought about, man, what does it look like for God to pour out his, his wrath? Like to me, I would have thought like lightning, you know, strike us with lightning, maybe fire from heaven. I always picture like Old Testament wrath, like you're rebelling so the ground opens up and swallows you up and we just move on without you. Like I'm like thinking like that. What it says here, because this, this is a connected thought, it says that God's anger from heaven is shown towards us in abandoning us to do whatever our hearts desire, those over-desires. God giving us over to what we wanted, even though he knows that what we want is not going to give us purpose and meaning. Think about those of us that are parents. We have, we have kids that, man, they just nag us about stuff. And we know that what they want is not good for them. We know that what we want is not in their best interest. But sometimes they will ask so much. And I'll, I've reached the point when my kids were little, I'm like, they're just going to keep nagging. So I might, I'd rather just let them do it and get sick from eating all that candy than have to tell them no again. And eventually you just kind of give it over and go, okay, fine, you can have what you want. And you see God doing that throughout Scripture, like with the nation of Israel. They wanted, uh, they were getting manna from heaven. They loved it when they first got it, but eventually they were like, we hate the manna, we want meat. So God said, fine, I'll send you quail. And when he sent it, he said, it's, you're, I'm going to send you so much, it literally will be coming out of your nose. So he said, you don't want it, you want this instead, fine, you can have it. The nation of Israel wanted a king. God said, you don't need a king, I'm your king. They continued to, to desire and over-desire. And even though God knew that it wasn't the, in their best interest, he said, fine, you can have it. And God, that is what God has done with humanity, abandoning us over to the shameful things that our hearts desired. And then in verse 25, he says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is, uh, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Because we don't or because we won't embrace the truth about God and instead we believe the lies of the enemy and knowing that we are beings that need to worship, the only other option for us is to worship something that is created rather than worshiping the creator. Verse 26, he says, this is, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires Again, you've got to link this to continued thought. You've got to link this back to verse 25 because they traded the truth of God for a lie. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, some of you are going, what in the world is he going to say? This is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Believe it or not, this is the longest passage in the Bible about same-sex relationships. Depending on your church background, some of us would have thought there must be entire books of the Bible dedicated just to this subject because every message may not start there, but every message sure seems to land there. This is the longest passage in Scripture about this subject. Paul begins talking about this progression with sexual immorality and also homosexuality, not because it's a greater sin than any other, but because it's the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. And so we're going to come back to this. We're going to, we're going to talk about it in, uh, in a couple of minutes, but it's part of a continuous thought. And so I don't, want to, I don't want to lose the thought. I want us to continue through the thought. And then we're going to circle back here and we're going to spend the closing minutes we have together talking specifically about this. So I'm going to ask you if you're watching online, or if you're here 
reserve judgment until we actually get a chance to, uh, to talk about it together. So continuing the thought, verse 28. Some of you are like, man, I feel so good because verse 26 and 27 doesn't really hit me. Put your seatbelt on because 28 through 32 is going to hit you between the eyes. Uh, same group, same thought. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he, com- he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things they never should have done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed. Anybody battle greed? An excessive desire for more than you need, right? A few more people are at the table. Uh, this is economic disorder, wickedness, sin, greed. Hate, envy, oh geez, murder, quarreling, deception. Anyone here ever deceived anybody? Malicious behavior, gossip, oh boy. I, I think the rest of us are at the table. In fact, if you're not, if you don't feel included yet, like feel free to be raptured to heaven because you clearly are just like Jesus already, so just go and be with him. They are backstabbers. That list is all things that, that point to. So we've had sexual disorder. Then he talks about economic disorder, social disorder, which is the things that, that, we've, just, uh, that we've just read. Uh, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. That's spiritual disorder. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. We've got all the kids now too. Uh, they refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and they have no mercy. When you talk about verses 26 through 32, doesn't it land immediately just at reading it a whole lot different than when you just isolate two verses and talk about them? He talks about sexual disorder, economic, social, spiritual, even family disorder. Everything's spiraling out of control. Paul is painting a picture of what theologians call the, the doctrine of total depravity. Tim Keller said it best. He said this. He says, Total depravity is that while not everything we do is completely sinful, nothing we do is completely untouched by sin. All of us are corrupted by sin. All of us are included in this passage. And the corruption of sin may manifest itself differently, but it is still the same sin. It is still the same sin that separates us from God that that needs Jesus. Paul is making the point, we all need the gospel. That maybe it manifests itself in your life in, in a form like envy or pride or unbridled personal ambitions, an out-of-control temper, maybe a struggle to control your impulses for food or alcohol or sex. But none of these behaviors in this list are in step with the gospel, and none of them are more or less significant than the others. And so you got to look at all of it together because this is a continued thought. This is all the product of us not acknowledging God us not looking to the creator, us not worshiping God. And so as a result, God let us go and let us pursue and chase the the over-desires that we have in our lives. And now I want to come back to verses 26 and 27 because I think it's an important conversation for us. And I want to say a couple of things up front. Number one uh, is this. The church has done a historically horrible job of teaching this passage. And number two, I think we've done an even worse job of loving and caring for people who find themselves struggling here. So I think we've done a bad job, and I'll give you a few reasons why. Number one, because we've isolated this passage to fit our own personal narrative. We build our belief on two verses and conveniently leave out the rest of the passage. Again, it lands differently when you read it all together. Number two, I think we lack grace and understanding. Um, an adult or student 
can come to a leader, maybe in your community group or, uh, or like one of, the, one of our student leaders. And in many faith communities around the country, around the world, an adult or student can come and, and express a struggle with lust, express a struggle with maybe an alcohol addiction, an anger problem. They can come and, and express a struggle with any number of issues, unbelief, and we tell them we love you and we're gonna walk beside you and we're gonna pray with you and we're not gonna, we're not gonna leave, we're gonna be with you. We're gonna really help you kind of navigate through this season of, of unbelief and we're gonna experience the victory of the gospel together and we're gonna walk with you. But that same place, let someone come forward and say, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or I'm involved in a same-sex relationship. And we tell them to suppress it. You know, we suppress the truth, but we tell them just suppress that behavior. We shun them. We tell them to deny it. We throw a few scripture verses at them and hope they never talk about it again. Like just sort of pretend it's not an issue or just, or just change. Like, man, Jesus died to, to deliver you from that, so, so go, and, go and be different. And I think we've done a terrible job of balancing truth with grace and understanding. I think of the story of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Do you know what the law said? The law said to kill her. That was never up for debate. Jesus never said, no, you're misinterpreting the law. The law said what she did, she deserved to die. And you can make the argument, well, where is the guy? Well, go find him and kill him too, because they both should have died. That's what the law said. But that's not how Jesus approached her, is it? No, instead he said some things, he wrote some things down, we don't know what it was, but every person there dropped the stones that they had to kill her with and walked away. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and be different. Go and, go and sin no more. There's a grace and understanding in the way Jesus dealt with people. I think it's shameful to think that there is a community full of students and adults who are struggling and they are suffering in silence because they think we're going to reject them, we're going to shun them, or even worse, we're going to bully them into some type of conformity. Third thing is, I think we've missed the main point. What's the main point? The main point is the gospel. Like there's only one conversation I wanna have with anybody who's far from God. That Jesus loves you, gave his life. He lived, died, was buried and rose again to pay for your sins and reconcile you back to God. That's the only conversation I wanna have. And the church has missed the point when the LGBTQ community knows what the church teaches about their lifestyle, but they don't know the truth of the gospel. And let me say something to anyone in here who may be struggling with this subject. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you have a loved one that is struggling with same-sex attraction or in a relationship. If that's you today, the only thing I care that you hear me say is that Jesus loves you as you are, just as he loves me as I am. And he gave his life to reconcile you back to God. If that's the only thing you hear, that's the only thing that matters. That's the bottom line. That's, that's the main point. But having said that, we believe that Paul's teaching is clear. 
This is clear that same-sex relationships are a result of the over-desire, that it's all in that progression from verses 18 all the way through verse 32, that it is a settled pattern indicative of a rejection in your life of the lordship of Jesus. It's not in alignment with the gospel and it's sin. We see it. We can't deny it. I'm not gonna try to explain it away. I'm not gonna try to tell you that, oh, you know, these cultural things, like I'm just not gonna do that. I'm gonna teach it the way that I teach everything else. And so, yes, we're gonna teach truth, but the truth is always going to be balanced with grace and it's always gonna be met with love. Separate verses 26 and 27 from verses 28 through 32. We're gonna teach them all together because it points every one of us in this room, everyone that may be online, it points us all to our need for the gospel. And so here's what I want you to know and here's what I want you to believe because here's the tendency. The tendency is to leave here and go, okay, so if you're struggling with that, okay, I just, I just, it just needs to change. That's the goal, but transformation doesn't happen overnight. Conformity does, but I don't ever want you to conform. I want you to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus living in you. And so some things I want you to know and things I want you to believe because belief shapes behavior. Belief precedes behavior. Number one is that you are dearly loved by God and you will always be loved, valued, respected, and embraced here at Generation. You'll be, you'll be treated with the same love and care that everybody else is. I don't have to agree in order to accept you I don't have to affirm you in order to love you. Number two, you can be gay and be a Christian. Here's a question I get. Can you be gay and be a Christian? I don't know. Can you gossip and be a Christian? I don't know, can you disobey your parents and go to heaven? I mean, like if, if, it's, if it's good for one, then it's good for all of them, right? Can you be gay and be a Christian? Absolutely. And listen, it is shameful and it is destructive and it is, humiliating to think that there are churches and people who call themselves followers of Jesus that would teach you anything else. That you can't be gay and go to heaven. That's a lie straight from the pits of hell. There is nothing in the Bible that would teach that. Can you be gay and be a Christian? Yes, you can, but here's what I believe you won't fully experience all that Jesus has for you. It will be a barrier in the growth of your relationship with him. The peace you lack, the turmoil you feel, all stem from a lack of surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. The purpose that you're seeking is only gonna be found in him. I wanna call your attention back to the end of, uh, of verse 27 talking about the peace we lack. It says, men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. There's an internal conflict. There's an internal tension. And listen, as followers of Jesus, we don't need to ratchet that up any more than is already there. The peace you lack, the turmoil you feel is only found in Jesus. We will be a place we will be a people that seek first to understand. It's living out those blessed rhythms. One of them is, is listen. 
Man, listen to someone's story before you start to draw your own conclusions. I'm not going to tell you what to think or what to feel. I'm not going to pretend that I can relate to your struggle in this area, but I absolutely can listen. I think in the faith community, we've, we've done so much damage by saying things to people like you weren't born that way. How do you know? How, how do we know what somebody was born feeling and, or, or what someone was drawn to? So let's get to know. Let's get to listen. Let's sit in the struggle that someone is experiencing silently by themselves and let's sit with them in that struggle. Get to know people who struggle with things that you don't. Not just this topic, you take any other number of topic. I mean, even just think about race today. Like, oh, we don't have a race problem. Get to know somebody that you don't know. Get to know someone that sees it differently. It's hard to hate what you know. It's amazing how if you have someone that you care about that struggles here, it's amazing how it reshapes not what you believe, but it reshapes the way you deliver the message of what you believe. Number four, the Holy Spirit is the one who will convict you, not me. I met uh, with a couple that's come off and on to generation and they sent me an email and said, uh, what do you think about this subject? I was like, that's kind of heavy in an email. Um, let's grab a cup of coffee. So we went and we had a cup of coffee and they said, well, what does the Bible say? And uh, so we, we talked a little bit about it. What do you believe? We talked about that. And then I said to them before they left, I said, listen, um, I will never pray for you to stop being gay. The gospel message is not let the gay become straight, it's let the dead become alive. I said, I will always pray for you to experiencing, experience the life-changing love and favor of Jesus and the power of his spirit living in you will convict you of any sin in your life as he is convicting me of the sin in mine and that he will guide you into all truth. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin. Like that's his job. And when we try to silence, when we try uh, to demand conformity, when we bully, what we're saying with our words and our actions is we're saying that we don't believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to change the heart. And so instead we will settle for a change in the behavior. And then the last thing is the gospel will show us a way through this. Romans 5.20 says, wherever sin did abound, grace did abound even more. Preach the gospel over this area of your life. If you're struggling here, the best thing I could tell you right now is preach the name of Jesus. Like fall in love with, with Jesus more and more every day and let him guide you. Rosaria Butterfield uh, said this. She said, when the Lord entered my world, I experienced that gospel ignited explosive power of a new affection. That new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus, my Jesus, my friend and my savior. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. <laughs> 
It's a belief issue. But you know what? So is greed. So is envy. So is anger. The gospel will show us the way through it. The gospel will lead and guide. The Holy Spirit wants to show you what is broken, but he doesn't want to show you what is broken so that you would feel guilt and shame. He wants to show you what is broken so he can begin to move you down a road that's not overnight. May takes may take weeks, months, years, but to show you what it looks like to be transformed, to show you what it looks like to become more like Jesus. I'm gonna give you some some resources, some some books to read. These people are way smarter than me. Um, it's the first is a really long title, so I'll never remember it. Openness, uh, unhindered, further thoughts of an unlikely convert on sexual identity and union with Christ. That's the, from the, the quote that I just read came from that. Uh, is God anti-gay? And then gay girl, good God. Uh, those are two, or excuse me, three great resources um, for you as you walk through this. Whether this is where you're, you're struggling personally or maybe you're walking with someone that is, that is wrestling with this. Um, this is a subject that is important I think it's nine, 91% of unchristianed people between the ages of 16 to 29 view the church as anti-gay. 91%. You know those 91% of people need to know? They need to know that Jesus loves them. And the way they're gonna know that Jesus loves them is through us. Would you stand with me? Listen, I, um, I truly believe the Holy Spirit uh, is speaking through uh, my words, some of them maybe better than others. Um, but if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and this is a place that you are, are struggling, um, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Loves you as you are the version you are right now. And I want you to know that, that we love you too. Holy Spirit, right now, I just pray that you would speak. I pray that you would shine a light into each of our lives. Spirit, I know that you, you know the intents of my heart this morning. And maybe the, the points that I didn't make as clearly and graciously as I wanted to. You're speaking into the same hearts of the people that are listening and you can, you can translate that message and, and you can make it land. We are all in need of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would soften the hardened heart that you would revive the dying heart and that you would open the closed heart to receive from you, to hear what you want us to hear and to go and live how you want us to live.
Speak to us now, we pray. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it.